1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and com slash hypergig for details.
2: Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tannerito's. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. See you in the new year.
4: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history.
1: Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Haciotis. Today, it's December 16th, and the Boston Tea Party took place on this day in 1773. Now, we have to go back to Boston in the colony of Massachusetts in the 1760s, so a little bit before the Tea Party. This is before the United States was a country or a political movement, really. Uh, Everyone was still a British subject. And to understand the context of what became the Tea Party, what led to the event, you need to know about the Stamp Act of 1765. Now, many goods had to be stamped in order to prove taxes were being paid back to Britain. This isn't just about postage stamps. It's uh, playing cards, all sorts of goods. And the colonists responded that these internal taxes were too onerous, it was too much of a pain. It was a contentious issue. The people who were actually in charge of overseeing the stamps resigned and left their posts. Now, Britain responded that, okay, we won't do that, but we'll instead tax imports to the colonies. And all this talk of tax may conjure thoughts of the saying, no taxation without representation. This is the sort of thing that is hammered into the heads of people in American history classes in middle school and high school. And what it means is, that no specific members of parliament back in Britain were elected by the colonists or represented their interests directly. Parliament, on their hand, responded that essentially the colonists did have representation because everybody in parliament represented them, sort of. Uh, This was known as virtual representation. The colonists didn't really see eye to eye with the parliament on this and uh, it led to some more conflict. And that brings us to tea. Now, tea was super popular in the colonies. Uh, Colonists consumed 1.2 million pounds of tea per year, which is more than half a million kilos. The imports, however, were controlled exclusively by the British East India Company, and the import tax could be increased or decreased as necessary by parliament. One justification that parliament gave for setting up this monopoly and levying these taxes was they had to spend money and resources on the French and Indian War, which they claim benefited the colonists, but it also benefited Parliament and the British Empire as well. Again, a series of events leads up to the Tea Party. It's, It's not just one isolated event. Laws and acts come into play. The 1769 Indemnity Act repealed the Tea Tax, but then the Townshend Acts restore that tax, and then those were repealed in 1770. And then in 1773, we have the Tea Act that comes along. Now, at this point, the people of Boston felt unrepresented. There was discontent. The whole population of the city was about 15,000, but there had been meetings of up to 5,000 people to talk about the problems. That's a third of the population of the city. And on November 27, 1773, word got out among one of these meetings that a shipment of tea was coming in. Now, the ships arrived in Boston Harbor and wanted to unload their tea, but the colonists particularly didn't want them to do that because then they'd have to pay the duty. The way it worked is once the tea hit the docks and left the boat, that's when the duties had to be paid. So folks whose names you may have heard if you're familiar with American history, Paul Revere, John Hancock, Sam Adams, folks like this and 113 other Boston townspeople were at the Old South Meeting House in Boston. Now, that's at the corner of Washington and Milk Streets today and the building still stands. You can see it, it's directly across from the Irish Famine Memorial. A little bit of a hubbub grows up in the crowd. Uh, you know, People get a little agitated and everyone marches down to the docks and they dump what today would be nearly $1 million worth of tea into the harbor. This is generally a peaceful protest. There was destruction of property, obviously, and probably some shouting, some kicking and shoving, but uh, nobody was killed. There were no serious attacks. In fact, of the 116 people who participated in this act, only one was arrested. Now, word of what became known as the Boston Tea Party didn't reach England until January of 1774. The British reacted angrily. They closed the port of Boston. They insisted the British East India Company be reimbursed for their lost goods. They reinstated the Quartering Act, which meant that British soldiers could stay in the houses of colonists for free. They restricted meetings, and they also decreed that British officials who were accused of major crimes in the colonies couldn't be tried in the colonies and would have to come back to England. So the Boston Tea Party didn't kick off the American Revolution per se. It's often shorthanded that way in history classes, but the first draft of the Declaration of Independence didn't come into existence until about 10 months later. But if we can agree that a country is a set of ideals and goals, there are no real borders on the ground. It's just a way that people think about themselves and the groups they belong to and what they value. The Boston Tea Party really did codify some of what America today Believes about itself. If you want to learn more about the Boston Tea Party, then search for the December 8th, 2008 episode of our companion podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. That's titled How the Boston Tea Party Worked. I'd like to thank Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class or Stuff You Missed in History Class on Apple Podcasts. You can find them on the iHeartRadio app or pretty much anywhere else you find your podcasts. Now, please make sure to listen to tomorrow's episode when host Tracy V Wilson returns and she will regale you with the history behind a certain celebration.
0: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
4: Hey, I'm Eve, and you're listening to This Day in History class, a podcast where we bring you a slice of history every day. The day was December 16th, 755 CE. Chinese General An Lushan proclaimed himself emperor, marking the beginning of the An Lushan rebellion against the Tang dynasty. The rebellion resulted in the establishment of the short-lived Yin Dynasty and a devastating number of deaths, though the exact toll is difficult to estimate. The Tang Dynasty came to power in China in 618 CE. Arts and culture flourished in the dynasty, and it has been considered a golden age in Chinese history. But in the middle of the 8th century, the Tang Dynasty was involved in several wars, so a lot of troops were dying and the Tang court was losing money. An Lushan was a military commander, likely of Turkic and Sogdian or Iranian descent. He gained prominence leading raiding parties against Khitan armies and other forces that threatened China. After he was defeated in one expedition in the 730s, he was disgraced and supposed to be executed, but he was just stripped of his rank and titles. But they were soon restored, and An Lushan proceeded to rise in rank. By 742, he had become military governor of the province of Pinglu on the northeastern frontier. An Lushan often went to Chang'an, the Tang capital, and he gained the favor of Emperor Xuanzong, the emperor's consort Yang Guifei, and Chancellor Lin Li Fu. And An Lushan continued to gain military power. By 747, he was given the honorary title of Chief Deputy Imperial Censor, and by 751, he was regional military commander of three garrisons in the north with more than 150,000 troops. Because he was in such good favor with the emperor, he avoided a lot of criticism, and he took advantage of the Tang Dynasty's weaknesses and his good graces with the emperor to plan a rebellion. In 752, Chancellor Li Linfu, who had gained dictatorial power, died. Yang Guzheng, Yang Guifei's cousin, replaced Li Linfu as chancellor. Conflict broke out between Yang Guzheng and An Lushan, and the next few years were marked by a power struggle as they tried to establish more military power on the frontier and political power in the court. At the same time, China was suffering from military defeats and natural disasters. An Lushan decided to use force. Under the guise that Emperor Xuanzong had commanded him to get rid of Yang Guzhong, An Lushan marched on Luoyang, the eastern capital of Tang China. Because An Lushan treated captured local officials decently, many joined his campaign, and his ranks grew. He captured Luoyang, and on December 16, 755, An Lushan declared himself emperor in northern China and established the rival Yin Dynasty. He was defeated by the Tang army in the Battle of Yang Chiu in 756, but he was more successful at Chang'an. He captured the city and sent the emperor southwest into exile with his court and household. The emperor's guards killed Yang Guzhong, whom they blamed for all the conflict, as well as Yang Guifei. Xuanzang abdicated in favor of the crown prince, Li Hong, who was proclaimed Emperor Suzong. Suzong appointed generals to deal with the rebellion, and imperial forces managed to recapture Chang'an and Luoyang. The rebellion continued, but An Lushan was murdered by his son in 757. The rebellion declined as its leaders died and soldiers and generals defected to the Tang army. It ended in 763, eight years after it began. The rebellion lasted through the reign of three Tang emperors. The rebellion weakened the centralized bureaucracy of the Tang Dynasty, as the dynasty pardoned many rebels and allowed some to command their own garrisons. The Tang government also lost a lot of control over the western regions, a strategically important area in Central Asia. The economy and intellectual culture of the Tang Dynasty also took a hit. The latter half of the Tang Dynasty was marked by warlordism, and the dynasty ended in 907. A period of political turbulence known as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms followed the fall of the Tang Dynasty. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any insight on an accent or a pronunciation spoken in the show today, you can feel free to send us a kind note on social media at Podcast. Our email address is thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow with another episode.
5: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
5: tika.com
2: Hello and welcome to this day in history class a show for those who can never know enough about history I'm Gabe Luzier and today we're talking about one of the deadliest natural disasters of the last 100 years including the reasons why you've probably never heard of it The day was December 16, 1920, at 7:06 p.m. local time. A massive earthquake wreaked havoc on the isolated Gansu province in north-central China. The disaster is generally known as the Haiyuan earthquake after the location of its epicenter, Haiyuan County. The quake hit one of the less populous areas of China but its death toll was exceptionally high nonetheless. The U.S. Geological Survey put the number at 200,000 lives lost, but that's a conservative estimate. A 2010 Chinese study reported the true number to be 273,000 lives lost. Depending on which country's statistics you go by, that makes the Haiyuan quake either the first or the second most deadly earthquake of the 20th century, as well as the third or fourth deadliest of all time. The area surrounding Haiyuan was characterized by vast deposits of something called loess, the yellow, wind-blown sediment that gave the Yellow River its name. This dry, loose soil made the region vulnerable to earthquakes and it didn't help that most of the homes there were cave dwellings, called yaodongs, that were dug out of the lowest deposits. These deposits were hundreds of meters deep in some places, and under seismic activity, the homes built into them were prone to collapse. These factors are one reason why the death toll of the Haiyuan earthquake exceeded that of quakes of similar intensity that occurred in more populous areas. Haiyuan was home to only about 146,000 people, but because of landslides and cave ins, nearly half of the county's population was lost. The earthquake registered at the highest level on the Mercalli intensity scale, which measures the observed effects of an earthquake. As for its magnitude, accounts vary but most sources agree its seismic waves were somewhere between a 7.8 and an 8.5 on the Richter scale. Either way, the quake was powerful enough to register on the equipment of 96 different locations around the world, and its aftershocks were reportedly felt in the region for the next three years. The damage from the quake extended through an area of 20,000 square kilometers, or nearly 8,000 miles. Dozens of villages near the epicenter were completely destroyed. In 14 counties, over 70% of all structures had collapsed, and throughout the region, over a million livestock animals were buried beneath debris. Because the region's granaries had been toppled, and because most of the sheep and cattle had been crushed, some of the initial survivors starved to death in the weeks following the quake. The disaster had occurred in the middle of winter, causing many others to die from exposure to windstorms and heavy snowfall. The grim situation was made even worse by frequent aftershocks, which left many survivors fearful of building anything but the most temporary of shelters. If that wasn't enough to contend with, survivors also had to navigate a changed environment, riddled with ground cracks, landslides, torn-up roads, and dammed rivers. These complications, along with the general remoteness of the region, are another reason why the death toll grew so high. It was difficult for survivors to escape the ruined landscape, and it was nearly just as hard for would-be rescuers to get through to those in need. The Chinese state and the general public eventually mounted relief and reconstruction efforts to help those most impacted by the quake. However, the aid that was given had little effect on such widespread suffering. This ineffectiveness was largely due to timing. The Haiyuan earthquake had struck during a famine that was affecting tens of millions of people in the North China Plain. Most public resources had been put into that crisis, leaving little support left over for the survivors in Gansu. Given the extensive damage and loss of life it caused, the Haiyuan earthquake remains relatively unknown. This is partly because it struck a rural location and not a major city, but more crucially, the quake took place during the early years of what would become the Chinese Civil War. Those hostilities, as well as the famine and other political crises of the day, overshadowed what was ultimately one of the worst natural disasters in human history. Today, China continues to be susceptible to massive earthquakes, but thanks to the lessons of previous quakes, like the one in Haiyuan, the country is much better equipped to handle the fallout. The public is much more aware of the earthquake risk and seismic activity is now factored into all construction, including underground dwellings, which are still very much in use. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
3: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
5: Zumo Play.